and welcome to the American Patchwork and Quilting Podcast, a podcast aimed at making your quilting life more fun and creative while connecting with quilters just like you. Join the staff of the magazines you love for a great episode filled with tips and tricks. Enjoy! Hi, and welcome to the American Patchwork and Quilting Podcast. I'm Lindsay Mayland, and I'm so excited to be here with you. As we prepare for what could be a long and possibly lonely winter of being quarantined, we wanted to share some ideas for hosting a virtual quilt retreat on today's podcast. Hopefully it inspires you to connect with your quilting friends in a new way and still get your sewing fix. I love the ideas we came up with and I'm feeling so excited that I may host one myself. (laughs) We also share a project one of our staff members is working on, some basic info on different types of pins, tips for binding, which we promise you haven't heard some of these tips before, and why you might want to use a project tracker for your UFO projects. Just a warning about this episode. The podcasting fairies were not on our side this week. Uh, We had so many audio problems while recording, like everything from microphones distorting to a, a cute little dog who needed her little barks to be heard, but... Podcasting from home has a lot of challenges, um, but we're showing up every week. We love being here, so thanks for hanging in there and understanding. We really appreciate you all. So, let's dive in. Who would have thought back in March that more than six months later, we'd still be in the middle of a pandemic? Mask wearing, social distancing, and canceled events are now a normal way of life for all of us. And while some of us are lucky to have our sewing friends nearby so that we can visit with them outside over a cup of coffee or chat with them at the local quilt shop from more than six feet away, many of us had had to cancel in-person quilt retreats where we would have seen our sewing friends from outside our area. I'm here with Jody Sanders, the editor of American Patchwork and Quilting, who is one of the many quilters with a canceled retreat this year. I love attending quilting retreats. Uh, I want to tell you about one. I was supposed to attend a national quilting retreat in March, kind of as things were really heating up. And so it was postponed to August. Well, then it got to be to August, and it was postponed again to March 2021. It's mostly with the same people every year, so we really look forward to seeing each other. I've also had my local and my state guild retreats that I usually attend They were also canceled in 2020. That's such a bummer. At the beginning of the pandemic, our brand hosted a few virtual quilt retreats on our social media pages, and we had so much fun doing it, and we heard from so many quilters how it uplifted their spirits during this hard time. So now that the weather is getting cooler, we may not have the ability to visit with our sewing friends outside, So we wanted to share some ideas for hosting a virtual quilt retreat so that you still have a chance to connect with your quilting friends from the comfort and safety of your own home. Yeah, and one of the first things that you want to think about is you want to figure out who you want to invite. So while in-person quilt retreats can easily accommodate larger groups of people, we kind of think that maybe five to ten people is a good number for a virtual one. Part of it is because of the limitations of technology, and more than 10 people can make it harder for people to talk. 
or for you to see and interact with all the members that are participating. It can also complicate the plan. Yeah, speaking of technology, you'll want to decide on a video service to host the retreat on. So Zoom is a very popular option. You may have even used it at some point this year to chat with your family. Um, but just a note that without the paid plan, you can only host meetings for up to 40 minutes at a time. So you'll have to pay $20 um, to upgrade your plan and host longer meetings. You can also try Microsoft Teams or WebEx, which all have free and paid versions depending on your needs. Um, and if you work in an office already, you may have an account for one of these video meeting services already. And the next thing you want to think about is to create a schedule of events. Now, because all the attendees will be in their homes, they may still have things that they have to do, like household duties or maybe some family obligations that they need to plan around. So a schedule will help them know when to be available for all the fun stuff and when they have more flexibility to pick up children from school or make the meal for the family or even run out to do an errand. Now, don't pack the whole day with activities because that can be a long time to sit and stare at a computer screen. But instead, have some check-ins throughout the day. Great point. I think we're all sick of staring at the computer all day. <laughs> so maybe try starting the day with a chat over coffee at 9 a.m. You can discuss what you're working on, catch up with friends, and gear up for the day. Then you can introduce some free sewing time where members can leave or turn off their computer for an hour or two to sew. A few hours later, have a check-in to catch up on each other's day, share progress, and ask any questions if you need opinions or help. Schedule a little more free sewing time, then end the day with maybe a happy hour to relax and recap the day. And if you wanted to feel a little more connected during the free sewing times, you can make a music playlist like on Spotify, where everybody can add their favorite songs. Then each attendee can listen to it while they're sewing. Another way to connect is through food. We love snacks at the retreats that I attend. So share the snacks that you love that you're eating while you're quilting, or maybe suggest a mealtime where everyone checks in and can visit while eating their meal together. You could even play a virtual game like Quilt Retreat Bingo. And we have that game as a free download on our website, so we'll link to it in the show notes just a fun way to connect with the other attendees throughout the day, and it provides a little extra activity while you're taking a break from your sewing machine. And another fun idea is to set up themed challenges where attendees share pictures or show um, up to a video dressed in a certain way. So for instance, maybe there's pajama hour or a time when everyone dresses from head to toe in their favorite color. Or how about show-and-tell time, where you share a quilt from your collection that fits the theme, such as an antique quilt or English paper piecing quilt? Get creative. You know the passion of your attendees best, so give them a chance to embrace what they love and share it with others. If all your attendees are local, it could even be fun to start the day with the host dropping off little goodies at the doorsteps of all the members. So some examples of fun little gifts could be a fat quarter, a handmade pin cushion, cozy socks, 
a packet of instant coffee or tea, or even a gift card to a local quilt shop. Oh my gosh, that is such a fun idea. <laughs> I know, I want someone to drop that off with me right now. <laughs> yes. Now, if all your attendees are spread across the country, you could send a printed invitation or a small gift to make it seem more special. But these retreats do not have to be expensive. The point of a virtual retreat is that you can save money, stay, stay safe, make progress on your projects while you're chatting with your friends. Another thing to consider, especially if you plan to make a virtual quilt retreat a regular occurrence in the future, is to set up a private Facebook group for the attendees. While all the fun can be happening in the scheduled video chats, you can use the Facebook group to ask questions, post pictures, and connect throughout the day. And the bonus is, you can stay connected through the group in the future too. So even when the retreat is over, you have a special place to chat with your old and new friends. And if you host another one where someone can't attend, they'll still feel part of the retreat by seeing everyone's pictures. Oh my gosh, that is a great idea. Now, don't feel boxed in by the schedule itself. Maybe you want to host a retreat where everyone works on the same pattern or for the same charity project. And if that's the case, make sure everyone has advance notice so they can order the fabrics and supplies that they need. If you're making a specific pattern, send the pattern or the link to purchase it to the attendees in an email ahead of time. Or maybe you're hosting a retreat that's aimed at learning a new skill or technique. So you can give the floor to the attendee who's the pro ready to teach others. Or many of the video conference programs have an option to share your screen so one person could play a YouTube video for everyone to watch. Now remember that you shouldn't share a video of a class you paid for since that doesn't credit the teacher or give them the monetary compensation. But YouTube or even our website, allpeoplequilt.com, have a lot of free how-to tutorials that you can share with others. Now, as we prepare for winter, especially one where we may not have the opportunity to attend in-person events, Getting a virtual quilt retreat on your calendar may give you and your sewing friends something to look forward to. Thanks, Jody. We'll link to some resources for hosting a retreat in our show notes. And maybe we need to plan a virtual recruit with, retreat with our staff this winter. I'm just feeling so inspired by all these ideas. <laughs> so we're going to take a quick ad break, but hang tight. When we come back, Jody will be sharing a project she's working on now. Hey folks, it's Hunter Lewis, Editor-in-Chief of Food & Wine. This fall, we're launching the new Food & Wine Classic in Charleston with our partners at Southern Living and Travel and Leisure, and we want to see you there. This incredible three-day culinary experience will showcase the hospitality, food, drinks, and culture of one of our favorite cities in the country. Join us September 27th to 29th to learn more from iconic chefs, share a glass with innovative wine experts, and get to know Charleston with one-of-a-kind experiences curated by the experts at Food & Wine, Southern Living, and Travel and Leisure. Tickets are on sale now at foodandwine.com forward slash Charleston Classic. That's foodandwine.com forward slash Charleston Classic. See you down in Charleston. And we're back. I'm here again with Jody for What's on Your Workspace, a segment where our staff shares the fun projects they're working on now. So Jody, what are you working on? So my favorite kind of quilts to make are scrappy quilts. So for me, the more fabrics, the better. 
So when I'm cutting fabrics, I try and cut for more than one quilt at a time because I've already got the fabrics out and I might as well just cut for multiple things. So right now I have two quilts that I'm working on. One is called the Make a Trade Quilt and it's a Jacob's Ladder pattern that's from the December 2019 issue of American Patchwork and Quilting. And for this quilt, each block has two fabrics and there are 120 blocks total so that means that there's 200 and different, 240 different fabrics in this quilt. Now while I'm cutting for that quilt, I'm also making a mini quilt. And the pattern for that quilt is called Tiny Stitches. And it's in the December 2020 issue of American Patchwork and Quilting. Now that quilt has 144 squares and I'm trying to make each one be a different fabric. So I'm cutting those squares for that quilt at the same time as I'm doing the make a trade. That sounds so fun. We'll link to those patterns in the show notes so that people can see what you're working on and maybe they'll be inspired to sew along with you and get those patterns. That'd be great. Next, I'm handing it over to Joanna Bergerino, the editor of Quilts and More magazine for Sewing Toolbox a segment where we explore the basic tools you use daily in your sewing room. Take it away, Joanna. Today for Sewing Toolbox, we're going to be looking at the humble sewing pin. I feel like pins get taken for granted since we use them so often and usually we just grab the first pin that's within reach. There are so many pros though to using particular types of pins for particular projects. There are tons of pins on the market, and over time, you'll probably find a few go-to types that become your favorites. There are a couple of things to consider when you're buying pins, and that includes the type of sewing you're going to be doing, and pin length and thickness. Certain fabrics have more stretch, are more delicate, or are slipperier than others. There are specialty pins designed to mitigate some of the challenges involved with sewing those types of fabric. Does it matter if there are holes left in the material after you unpin it? That's something you have to consider for leather and vinyl, for example. If you're foundation, foundation piecing, you're also going to want to look at the height of the pin's head. Flat pin heads are helpful for when you're placing new fabric pieces, folding back the foundation, or trimming because they don't cause a bump in the fabric. Pin length and thickness is also important, especially if you're working on handwork or a project with small pieces. You might want to consider shorter pins in those cases because they hold things in place but are less likely to poke your fingers. Thin pins are good for piecing because they don't add much bulk and you get a nice straight seam. However, very thin pins can bend over time. Thicker pins work better for things like quilt sandwiches and thicker fabrics. They're less likely to bend as you push them through thick layers. With that out of the way, let's look at five specific types of pins you might want to look into investing in for your projects. First, there are ball head pins, which are probably the most popular type. The ball on the top makes them easy to remove as you sew, but the plastic can melt under an iron, so be careful. They work well for most projects and fabric types, and some have different styles of pinhead that can make them easier to grip. So for example, some have um, grooves or they're rubberized, just makes them a little bit easier to remove. Second are glass head pins, which are thinner and sharper than ball head pins, but they're similar in terms of shape and purpose. The glass heads won't melt under an iron, which is a nice perk, 
although it's still advised to take them out before pressing your sewn unit. These are my personal favorite type of pins, and I use them for most of my sewing. I like how the sharp points let me pin and unpin in a smooth motion. I also tend to use a lot of ball head pins though, because I tend to pin my pieces a lot, and regular ball head pins tend to be cheaper to buy in bulk. The third and fourth type of pins are more for specialty sewing. Applique pins have tiny heads, small enough to prevent thread from getting stuck on them if you're hand sewing, and they have small pin shafts because some applique pieces uh, tend to be small, so you don't want your pin several inches bigger than the fabric piece you're trying to focus on. These small pins can also be helpful for adding embellishments or for English paper piecing, again because of their short length. Don't want to be poking your fingers. Flower head pins are often used for foundation piecing. I mentioned them a little bit earlier. The flat head of the flower pin lets you lay a ruler atop the pinned pieces. They also have a long shaft, which can make them good for quilting projects as well. Similar to ball head pins, the plastic tops can melt, so be careful if you're putting them anywhere near heat. Uh, one thing to note is that although I'm calling these flower head pins, um, because you usually see them in the shape of a flower, they can really be shaped like anything. I've also seen butterflies and hearts, for example. Some of them are really cute, and I actually like to leave them on display in my sewing space just to pretty it up a little bit. And then finally, the fifth kind of pin I'm going to discuss today is the fork pin, which looks like an elongated U. One of my designer friends actually tipped me off about these. I had I'd seen them, but I never really thought about using them for a quilt before, and honestly, I wasn't really sure what they were for. They work really well for quilting when you're nesting your seams as you're piecing a quilt top. You can insert each prong of the fork pin on each side of the seam, which keeps the fabric pieces snugly nested together. That way they don't move around and you end up with seams that don't quite align. They're incredibly helpful when you're matching seams. So those are my five pins. I already mentioned that glass head pins are my favorite. Lindsay, do you have a particular type of pin that you love or use most often? Good question. I most often use ball head pins. It's honestly what I bought the most of when I first started quilting before I realized there were so many different types of pins. Although I've recently tried fork head pins, and I think they're going to be a game changer in my sewing life. I do want to mention a great brand of pins that I love. They're called Magic Pins from Taylor Seavell. They have everything from piecing to applique to quilting pins and in different thicknesses, which is really nice. And what I specifically love about these pins is that they have an elongated head on each pin made from a silicone. So they're so comfortable to hold. I find them easier to grab and they're heat resistant so they can go under an iron. So we'll link to them in the show notes if you're interested in, in seeing more about them. Now, we're going to take a quick ad break, but hang tight. When we come back, we'll be sharing some amazing binding tips and some info about using project trackers. Welcome back. I'm going to hand it back to Joanna for Back to Basics, a segment where we share tips and tricks about a sewing tool or technique. Go for it, Joanna. Like many of our readers and listeners, I'm currently working on finishing up my pumpkin picking quilt, 
which is the Quilts and More Quilt Along for this year. We're getting close to the end stages. This week is adding the border, so I thought it'd be a good time to talk about binding. Here are a few of my favorite binding tips. First, to get an idea of how your binding fabric will look once it's cut, folded, and sewn to your quilt, cut a half inch long slit in a square of cardstock to make a viewing window. Hold the slit over your fabric and look through it to see what the design will look like once it's only a half inch wide. Small print designs, solids, especially stripes, all tend to work well for fun bindings, but large scale or directional prints might look a little strange once they're sewn to the quilt. That being said, I've actually had a few large scale prints that make unexpectedly cool bindings. Sure, you lose the main design, but sometimes you gain an abstract design or a neat pop of color that looks really nice when added to the quilt. So don't rule out those large scale projects, but definitely test them with the window first so that you're not disappointed after you've cut your strips. Second, prep your binding at the same time you cut the pieces for the quilt top so that you save your binding fabric and don't accidentally use it for a different project. I've definitely done that before and boy, was I kicking myself. Since quilts take a while to complete, it's easy to forget that you meant to reserve that particular binding fabric. If you're purchasing fabric for a quilt project, this is also a helpful way to make sure you have enough of the particular binding fabric you selected while it's still current and available in stores. If you're concerned about storage, Try wrapping your prepped binding around a toilet paper roll so that you can store it wrinkle-free and it doesn't take up a ton of space. I love to sew my binding to the back of my quilts by hand, so my third tip is to try a hand quilting thread. That type of thread has a coating on it to keep it from tangling. It's a big help to not have to constantly untangle your thread as you go. One quick bonus tip, I highly recommend wearing wrist braces or compression gloves if you're hand sewing binding. I can't speak for everyone, but for me, my wrists really start to hurt from the repetitive motion if I don't take frequent breaks while sewing on binding. I've gotten in the habit of preemptively wearing protective gear to take some of the pressure off my wrists. It lets me sew longer and pain-free. Give it a try if you find you have some similar troubles with hand sewing. Thanks for those great tips, Joanna. I'm really happy she mentioned compression gloves. Uh, just recently, I've noticed that when I bind my quilts by hand, I've had wrist pain and some arm numbness, so I'm definitely going to order some gloves now that I know they help. Now, we're moving on to UFO Challenge, a segment where we address common finishing problems so that you can complete your UFOs. Today, I want to talk about tracking your projects. When you have unfinished objects, especially ones where you only work on them occasionally or you've had them for years, it can be really helpful to track important details about the project. There are a few reasons why tracking your projects is important. First, if you have to set your UFO to the side for a few months, or if we're being really honest with ourselves, if it gets shoved to the back of the closet and you don't work on it for a few years, Having notes with the project on what step of the process you were in or what still needs to be done on the project can save you a lot of time and stress. So that way, when you're ready to start working on it again, you can jump right in where you left off. I know for me, there was one UFO I got out to work on this year. 
And I quickly put it away because it was too much work to figure out, you know, how many blocks I had and what my half-sewn units were for and what fabrics I still needed. And I didn't want to waste my precious sewing time on anything but sewing. Another thing, tracking your progress can also be a form of motivation. I don't know about you, but I love crossing things off my list. So when I'm tracking progress on a UFO, and it's especially helpful on those UFOs I may not be the most passionate about anymore, seeing the check marks on the tracker and seeing my progress motivates me to get to the finish line. And it somehow helps to show you just how close you are to finishing a project. When you only have a few more steps to cross off your list, you may just find yourself pushing through to get them done instead of putting it away for another time. Another reason to track your UFOs is to keep track of important deadlines. Now, not all your unfinished projects may have deadlines. In fact, that may be a reason why they turned into a UFO in the first place. But some may be intended as gifts or for displaying during a specific season or holiday, or you may just want to get it to your long-arm quilter when he or she has an opening. You can use your tracker to keep aware of these important deadlines and make sure you're on track to finish in time. A project tracker can also serve as a remembrance of past projects. Many trackers include space to write down the name of the project, the designer, what fabrics you used, when you finished it, and other notes about the quilt. So when you finish a UFO, it would be a really fun idea to take a picture of the quilt, attach it to your project tracker, and keep them all in a binder so that you can easily look back at past projects and remember fun details about the process and project. This is even more valuable if the quilt was a gift and you don't have it in your possession anymore. We have a project tracker download on our website, so we'll link to it in the show notes if you're interested. I'm going to start using a project tracker for every new project I start, especially now that the holidays are approaching and I'm, you know, starting gifts and holiday decor and my sewing room is getting a little crazy. So this tracker will keep me organized. Before we leave today, I wanted to quickly highlight a review of our podcast. This review is from Barbie60s. She says, Just recently found American Patchwork and Quilting Podcast and have listened to several already. They have really got me motivated to start making more time for quilting and thinking about my projects. Always great to learn new things. Very inspiring podcasts. You feel like you are in the room and a part of it. Thanks so much, Barbie60s. We're so excited you found us and are enjoying it. So if this review is yours, please reach out to us through email at apqpodcast at meredith.com so we can send you a little gift. And remember, if you love this podcast, please leave us a review. We may feature yours on an upcoming show. Have a great week, everyone, and enjoy this little blooper outtake from our dog friend, Penny, who you probably heard on today's show. Go, dog, go. (laughs) She's barking.
Hi, all, and thanks for listening. Keep in touch. American Patchwork and Quilting is on Facebook, Pinterest, and Instagram at All People Quilt. Email us at apqpodcast at meredith.com. Resources for this week can be found at allpeoplequilt.com slash podcast. And if you love the American Patchwork and Quilting podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app for free. And don't forget to rate and review the show. It helps other quilters find us. Have a creative week.